One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. According to the American Psychological Association, there are big health benefits to owning a pet. Improved self esteem and physical fitness are the main ones. Pet owners are also less lonely, more conscientious, and less preoccupied, the APA says. Donald Trump doesn't have a pet. He's one of only three presidents not to have had one. When he moved in, the White House was very friend-free for the first time in 150 years. Now Champ and Major Biden, two German shepherds, are preparing for the high-profile job of first pups. A Washington tradition is being restored Medical science suggests they'll help keep the new president in good health. But what about the country he's promised to heal? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can Joe Biden contain the coronavirus? Joe Biden's first move as president-elect was to launch a task force to tackle the pandemic. Drug firm Pfizer announced major progress on a COVID-19 vaccine the same day America registered its 10 millionth case. Deaths and hospitalizations are passing new records. Failure to control COVID has dented US global leadership. Can Biden turn things around? In this episode, we'll assess his first moves, find out how the rollout a miracle vaccine has gone wrong before, and hear from a frontline doctor who's advised Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, The Washington Correspondent. Charlotte, how are you? I'm doing well. New York has been pretty cheerful. It's a very blue city. So on Saturday, when the news came that Joe Biden had been named president-elect, there were people rushing out into the streets and honking horns and spontaneous dance parties broke out across the city. But, you know, the number of cases are rising here quite rapidly. And people are anticipating that we may have a shutdown again quite soon. So, you know, Some people are making dental appointments and rushing to get their hair cut or whatever it might be. But I think we're headed into a bit of a darker period again. John, how about you? How are you? And where were you when the result was eventually called for Joe Biden? I was in the parking lot of a stop and shop in New Milford, Connecticut. The glamour. It was very glamorous. I was driving up to a family's house in rural Connecticut, and I sort of figured that Saturday morning was a safe enough time to do it. And it was not. I think I was on my way in to buy rice when it was called. Um, I'm okay. COVID has already shut down my kids' schools here. I came back from Philadelphia covering the election sick, and so quarantined in my basement for five days before I got a negative test. My brother-in-law is concerned that he's been exposed at work, so he is now quarantining away from his family for two weeks. It, It really feels like we're heading into a bad period. Well, that's certainly what the numbers suggest at the moment. We haven't spoken about the coronavirus in any depth on the podcast for a little while because we've been a little bit busy with the presidential election. 
But to get a sense of how America's coping with the pandemic, I went back to Idris Kaloun, who's The Economist's US policy correspondent based in Washington. He's a checks and balance regular. He's been writing about the virus in the US this week. Here we are again. This is probably the third wave in a country we thought first wave was bad, second wave happened, and now the latest numbers that are being shown are exceeding the levels of hospitalizations and cases that we saw previously. Epidemiologists have been warning that the winter months that are ahead of us could be really bad. People are going to be traveling for the holidays, the weather's going to get colder, folks are going to move inside where transmission is easiest. All of those suggest that the next few months could be quite bad indeed. All through this year, we've been trying to compare the progress of COVID-19 in America with Europe. And sometimes when we've done that, it's been to point out that even though the Trump administration's response looks really bad, the virus hasn't been much worse in the US than it has been in Europe. How does that comparison look to you at the moment? America is experiencing its third wave as Europe is experiencing its second The difference now is that Europe had an initial really bad wave and then it declined to pretty low levels. And now the second wave has come on with this sort of vengeance. It's even higher in terms of cases per population, deaths per population than what America is experiencing now. And Europe is responding very aggressively. Countries are going on national level lockdowns um, across the board. In America, America sort of plateaued to higher levels with every wave. And I wonder if the analogy of the frog and the water that's steadily heating up applies. Policymakers at the state level, at the federal level, are not really reacting to it with nearly as much vigor as those in Europe are. America has sort of become acclimated to high levels of virus transmission, which are well upwards of 100,000 new cases detected a day, upwards of 1,000 deaths a day. Idris, Joe Biden now has his coronavirus advisory group, a part of his transition team. What plans are they putting in place and how optimistic are you that they might make a difference? So his transition board is trying to capitalize on the plans that he laid out while he was running for office. They are laying out an idea of mandating businesses to create masks, uh, personal protective equipment, use some of the extraordinary powers that a president can invoke to compel businesses to do those sorts of things. They are exploring what they can do in terms of mandating masks, but probably the president doesn't have the power to do that on day one. He'll have to try and cajole states into imposing their own mask mandates. That might be difficult. He has a series of other plans in terms of funding for things like a public health task force of contact tracers, funding for vaccine distribution, which he wouldn't be able to do on his own, but which would require the consent of Congress. And it's looking unlikely the Democrats will have complete control over Congress in January. So some of those more ambitious plans might be put on hold. There's a lot of COVID optimism going around at the moment on the back of the Pfizer trials. How optimistic are you feeling about the virus in the US over the next couple of months? The vaccine is really good news. It's, I think, as we wrote, the beginning of the end of the epidemic. But it's still going to be a couple of months before there's widespread distribution. Getting it to places like North Dakota, which is the center of the current outbreak in America, that will be hard. It's going to consume the first months of the Biden presidency.
So Charlotte, as Idris mentioned there, we've got a big experiment in public policy going on at the moment on different sides of the Atlantic. Caseloads and deaths in Europe and America look similar at the moment, but all across Europe, you're seeing countries locking down. Where I am at the moment in London, restaurants are closed, pubs are closed. You're allowed to meet with one other person outside and go for a walk, but that's it. Socializing is out, either outdoors or indoors. Meanwhile, in America, there are far fewer restrictions. And so I guess we're about to find out which approach to this virus is most effective. I was most struck by New Jersey, which is, of course, right next to New York. And the governor there is responding to rising number of infections by banning indoor dining between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. And the chances that that is going to have a big impact on limiting the uh, rate of transmission seems pretty slim. But back in the spring when we were talking about the pain being felt in dense areas like New York and across the Northeast, we talked about what might happen when COVID spread to more rural parts of the country and more sparsely populated regions. And that's what we're seeing now. Some of the worst affected states in the past week have been the Dakotas, Iowa, Wisconsin, Nebraska, and Wyoming. And cases there are rising pretty quickly. And if you take a state like North Dakota, it's a big state. It doesn't have a lot of people in it. There are fewer people who live there than who live in the borough of Brooklyn. But in terms of geographic area, it's pretty big. It's just a bit smaller than England and Scotland combined. And it takes a long time to drive from one end of it to the other, um, as I have in a condition called freezing fog, which I didn't know was a thing. Uh, but it doesn't have that many hospitals, and a lot of people live far away from the hospitals that it does have. Right now, every ICU bed, every intensive care bed in North Dakota is occupied. And so you see some of the pain that's going to be felt in parts of the country where rates of infection are rising, uh, where cases are rising, but the health system is already getting overloaded. The rural spread was forecast, I think, at the beginning of the disease, although at the very beginning, there was an idea that it was a disease of density, right? That it was spreading in New York because New York was so dense and people were on public transit together and they live quite close together. But New York got its infection rate under control through the norm of wearing a mask. I think it's those norms that have yet to take hold in a lot of rural America. And the fact that cities are coping better suggests that that norms really do make a difference and that the key to stopping the spread is social distancing where possible, but really mask wearing is, is crucial. And I wonder, as things get worse, whether even in these rural states, Trump voting states, states with Republican governors, that even absent a mandate, there will be a norm that emerges of, of mask wearing. I certainly hope so. When we had the director of the CDC, Robert Redfield, on the podcast earlier this year, he said that the second wave coincided with a lot of travel around Memorial Day. And Americans love to travel for Thanksgiving and for Christmas. So it seems quite likely to me that we're going to see an increase in the number of infections. Ashish Jha, who's now the dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University, spoke to Idris this week, and he reckons there could be 100,000 further deaths between now and Joe Biden's inauguration on January the 20th. Charlotte, when President Biden is inaugurated, as we expect him to be, despite all the lawsuits and everything else, what difference do you think having him in the White House versus having Donald Trump in the White House will make? 
I think it will make a difference. He wants to increase the number of drive-through testing sites to try to mobilize, he said, at least 100,000 contact tracers. You know, he wants to support the World Health Organization. Trump announced that in July, he announced that the U.S. would leave the WHO. Um, That would have been effective next year. So that is not going to happen under a Biden administration. I think that really importantly, he will be in charge of communication when the vaccine is rolled out. You've seen just how political something that is presumably apolitical can become, i.e. wearing masks. And I think the degree to which Biden, but also others in positions of leadership, particularly on the Republican side, the way they communicate the efficacy of the vaccine and try to instill trust in the process for distributing it, all that will be hugely, hugely important to try to move forward. I think his ambitious plans also highlight how important it is to get the transition moving now. For the past 60 years, except for in 2000, when there was a disputed election, the head of the General Services Administration within 24 hours of the election being called has signed an ascertainment letter and allowed the transition to begin. That would give President-elect Biden's team access to public health officials. He could talk to Anthony Fauci. He could get his people in the CDC and make sure his plan is workable from the time he enters. And he doesn't have to spend time sort of getting settled with the bureaucracy. The fact that this hasn't happened now is really kind of worrying. And I think the sooner he can get the logistics of the transition in motion, the better it will be for him come January when he is the one in charge of dealing with this virus. Well, perhaps the biggest task that will face the Biden administration is the distribution of the vaccine once production is scaled up. And Joe Biden's picked Ron Klain as his chief of staff, who back in 2014 headed up the White House's response to Ebola. That also required keeping a lot of doses of vaccine very cold and getting them distributed. Thank you both. We're going to look at the lessons from a previous vaccine rollout that went badly wrong in just a moment. But first, a reminder that if you don't subscribe to The Economist already, you really should. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash electionpod. You'll be able to read Idrissa's reporting, plus a full briefing on the Pfizer vaccine and whether it really is the beginning of the end of the pandemic. With a subscription, you can also access a beautiful chart our data team made of the history of White House pets. The link to that is in the notes for this episode, as is the link for the subscription offer, economist.com slash 2020 election pod. In 1921, Franklin Roosevelt's polio diagnosis caused panic. People gave up swimming based on reports he contracted the disease on holiday by a lake in Canada. There were many years of struggle and heartbreak. By the 1950s, regular summer outbreaks of the disease were causing widespread paralysis and death, particularly among children. Parents lived in fear of polio's sudden attack and the tragic aftermath. Thousands upon thousands of children and adults fell prey to the crippler. But a high-profile victim helped accelerate the search for a vaccine which got a further boost when Roosevelt became president. Then in 1954, a vaccine to prevent paralytic polio, developed by Dr. Jonas Salk, a grantee of the National Foundation, was tested in the largest field trials in medical history. When Dr. Salk, a University of Pittsburgh virologist, announced successful tests on a million schoolchildren, 
It felt like a miracle. The next challenge, commercial production of the polio vaccine in quantity. A chapter ends. The enemy of man is now ready to become his servant. But the vaccine rollout went tragically wrong. Thousands of children received a version that contained the live virus. A laboratory in California run by the Cutter family had made a series of mistakes in the production process. 40,000 children caught polio. 200 were paralyzed. 10 killed. As The Economist reported at the time, bright hopes were choked by confusion. The first mass vaccination program against polio had to be abandoned. Now, as a result of observations uh, made during that epidemic, it has become clear that the protective effect of the vaccine uh, increases in a very orderly way after each injection. Thankfully, Dr. Salk's process was made safe once the mistakes at the Cutter Lab were identified and rectified. The immunity appears now to uh, be indefinite. His place in history was secured as polio was eradicated in the US. All of the indications in the United States are the type 2 virus, uh, for which the vaccine is the most potent has, uh, to all intents and purposes, disappeared as a cause of disease over the past few years. Salk refused to patent his formula and enjoyed huge acclaim. Airline passengers cheered when the pilot announced he was on board. But he never got the Nobel Prize. The delays and doubts caused by the Qatar tragedy also meant that for years, a less effective oral vaccine developed by Salk's great rival, Albert Sabin, remained in use when it needn't have. No vaccine can leave the pharmaceutical house until all tests by the manufacturer and the government are completed satisfactorily. The biggest consequence of the Cutter story was to usher in modern standards of vaccine regulation. The protocol is finished, then sent to the National Institutes of Health for government approval required by law. In 1955, it took a couple of hours to get approval for a vaccine. These days, it can take a year or more then subjected to a whole battery of complex scientific tests. Twenty monkeys are involved in the testing of every lot of vaccine, and each receives three injections from the manufacturer's sample. The purpose? Once again to confirm the safety and effectiveness of the polio vaccine. But the case also opened the floodgates for litigation against vaccine makers. A court ruled that Qatar was liable to pay compensation to those damaged by its vaccine, even though the lab wasn't found negligent. Vaccine production became so high risk as to be almost unviable. The National Vaccine Injury Compensation Programme was established in 1986 to prevent lawsuits from crippling the industry. In 1955, over 10 million children received one or more injections of salt vaccine, including this boy, the president's own grandson, as America awaits another miracle vaccine in time to resume lakeside vacations next summer, it's a reminder how rocky the road to eradication can be. American homes and homes everywhere, safe at last, safe from the terrible invasion of polio.
John, every Monday morning, there's an all-hands editorial meeting at The Economist. And in pre-COVID times, everybody crammed into uh, the same office and had a discussion about what would be in that week's edition. Now it all happens over Zoom. We were on a Zoom call Monday morning, London time, when the news of the Pfizer efficacy rate came through, the 90% efficacy. And there were sort of whoops of joy. And Natasha Loder, our colleague who covers vaccines, was just incredibly excited about that efficacy rate, which was far higher than anyone was hoping for. So this is by far the best news we've had on coronavirus in a long time. But there are still some uncertainties surrounding that Pfizer vaccine. Yeah, I think there are three big uncertainties. The first one is that the vaccine appears to be very good at preventing symptoms, but how well it stops transmission is still uncertain. The second one concerns how many doses Pfizer can produce and by when. The company says that it can deliver 100 million doses to the U.S. by March and produce 1.3 billion doses next year, but the planet has almost 8 billion people on it. So how the doses get to people is going to be uncertain. I assume that will be a very politically fraught matter. And the third one is, as Idris pointed out, sort of the logistics of getting the virus from purchase point to the people who need it. That is, it requires extensive cold storage. You have to prioritize who gets it when. And all of these things are, I think, going to be quite politically fraught and they're going to be big fights. All of these things are uncertainties on the back of what is unalloyed good news, which is that we seem to have a very effective vaccine that's ready to be given to the public quite soon. It's so fascinating to see the response to the news this week, because usually when there are big drug trials or results come out, phase one or phase two or phase three, you know, there's a set of patient groups that's really interested in it, but it's not like the entire country is fixated on the news. Markets don't respond en masse in the way that they did this week to news from a drug trial. And I think the next several months will be really important for the FDA to continue to be transparent. It has always had these external advisory committees with public meetings in which they can discuss new treatments and have different people weigh in. These are usually, again, attended by a few patient groups, by um, the drug makers themselves, by various scientists. It's not like it's national television. But I think that those hearings and those meetings will get a lot of attention going forward. I do really think that this question of whether people will take it once it becomes available is both fascinating and so, so important. We did a poll, The Economist did a poll with YouGov that indicated that about 40% of American adults would consider being vaccinated. That's not that high a number. And there's research from Pew that shows that the share of people who would be willing to take a vaccine should one materialize has actually declined since the start of the pandemic. And so I do think, again, to repeat myself a bit, that communication and trust is so important going forward. I feel that at this moment, we should all do our bit for communication and confidence building. I, for one, will take this vaccine as soon as I possibly can. I can't wait to get vaccinated with it. It's also worth noting that over the next few months, at least, there are going to be a lot more people who want to take this vaccine than there are doses of vaccine available. So the extent to which vaccine scepticism is a problem, that won't show up until later on when we have more doses. Also, John, some of those uncertainties that you raised earlier over distribution and whether the Pfizer vaccine prevents transmission, it's it's worth noting there that there are still a load of other vaccines hopefully coming our way. Johnson & Johnson's working on one, which is a single 
dose one rather than the Pfizer vaccine, which requires two doses. And there are several other competitors. So, you know, Pfizer's first and the efficacy rate is really high, but hopefully there'll be some others coming along too. Yeah, I think there will be. Um, and I also, you know, if we are doing our bit, I also will not hesitate to get a vaccine. I will assume that if it's FDA approved, it's safe. I think the sooner that we can get all of us vaccinated, the sooner we can return to normal. It's now not unthinkable that we could actually have a normal Thanksgiving and Christmas next year, um, even if it looks very unlikely and unwise this year. So that's what we all want. And we can't do that without a widespread vaccine. I hope those numbers of skeptics decline uh, as the vaccine becomes available and as communication from the White House becomes better. I also can't wait to get the vaccine. It is worth pointing out that vaccine confidence in the U.S. is actually better than in much of Europe and Japan, which I found surprising and interesting. So it's not just an issue in the U.S. Uh, this is There are people who are anxious about vaccines all over the place. Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in a bit to talk about the politics of COVID during this tricky transition period. What will the politics of the pandemic be like in the coming months? Kavita Patel treats COVID patients as a doctor in Washington, D.C. She's also been on the Senate staff, advised the Obama White House, and, most recently, Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. She knows the Biden task force people well. I do think there's unreasonable expectations that somehow the skies will open and COVID will disappear just because we elected a different administration into office. I fully expect we will still see incredible hurdles, not just tens of thousands of cases of coronavirus a day, but deaths that go with it. It is incredibly hard to get from press release from Pfizer to hundreds of millions of Americans believing in a vaccine, taking the vaccine, and seeing the effects, the immunity, as well as any potential side effects. We know already that about 45% of the country doesn't believe in masks. So just having a new administration isn't going to make those problems go away. As you say, there are a lot of different problems there. How do you order them in your mind? You know, what seems to you to be the toughest? Is it the logistical effort required to get 350 million Americans two doses of this vaccine? Is it the fact that, as you say, a non-trivial number of Americans have said in the past to pollsters that they might not take the vaccine, though I guess that was before they knew it was 90% effective? There are a whole load of things to worry about here. So I'm just after some assistance in thinking through how to order them. Yeah, I do think the high, I have said this, by the way, to people working with President-elect Biden, that if you do not have a plan ready to go on January 20th for vaccine distribution, you're way too late. Usually what happens is the federal government purchases the vaccines, but the states are in charge of distributing the vaccine. To be honest, there's a lot of problems with that because states are not necessarily all easily equipped. A state like California is like a country. And then you have some states like North Dakota that don't even have the manpower or the woman power within the state. And then something that has not been talked about enough is data. We have the data science and technology in the United States and in the world. We are not using that today inside the federal government to understand 
where we need to put resources, who needs masks, what's the supply, who needs remdesivir, who needs monoclonal antibodies, where have we seen gaps in people of color when you have states like North Dakota that have primary care shortages, where are people going to get care? We don't know any of that. And that's insane in 2020. How important is Congress going to be in all of this in January? There are plenty of areas like healthcare reform, reducing carbon dioxide emissions, where it seems that without Congress, the uh, new president is going to have his hands tied behind his back, frankly. But on this, will the new president need Congress? Or actually, is he able to do almost everything through his executive authority? No, not at all. There is an incredible amount you can do just by presence and executive orders and authority to the agencies that he's in charge of. However, you do need Congress. And look, I used to work for Senator Edward Kennedy from the state of Massachusetts. He taught us that even when you have an incredibly divided government, you can actually get some incredible things done. Frankly speaking, right now, I know that there are people on the Biden-elect transition team meeting with members of Congress today because they need to get a stimulus act passed today. They can't wait until January 20th. One of the things that's been striking this year, watching COVID sweep through America and through Europe, is how much more politicised the government's response to COVID has been in the US. And it's been hard to figure out how much of that is to do with President Trump and how much of that is to do with the hyper-partisanship that predated him. How optimistic are you that the COVID response come January can be at least somewhat depoliticised? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to give this to you by giving you a little story. So I spend about a third of my time seeing patients and I work primarily in a a Medicaid, mostly Latino community. I wear scrubs and a mask, not a suit. And what's interesting is that even in those communities, they'll say things to me like Donald Trump says this isn't real or nobody cares whether we die or whether we live. It's only in that one-on-one dynamic, John, that I can actually talk about what I've seen when people get COVID-19, how I've seen them die, how I'm scared and I don't want to get it. And then you start to kind of debunk the myths or you start to fight the misinformation. Probably the biggest job of the task force is to think about how do we fight disinformation. But I think it's going to have to be one-on-one with trusted individuals. Unfortunately, it's not the media. It's not news outlets because there's so much partisanship that people feel. And so that is going to be hard work. But when we were at the height of our pandemic previously, it was amazing how many people listened and trusted only because I told them like sincerely what I'm seeing clinically. And that resonated. Charlotte, we're all feeling more optimistic about COVID-19 in the medium term because of the vaccine and because the others that are hopefully on the way. But the next couple of months in America look like they're going to be pretty bad, right? I mean, the virus case numbers are rocketing up at the moment. And there's not much sign yet of action in Congress on a COVID-related stimulus package for the economy. That's right. So in some ways, everything has changed in American politics in that we have a new president-elect and nothing has changed, right? Trump is still president. He hasn't conceded. If we are going to have a stimulus by the end of the year, regardless of a concession, you know, it, it, McConnell's not negotiating directly with Joe Biden. So McConnell has said that he wants to pass a stimulus, but he doesn't want to do something as broad as what Democrats 
would want. So McConnell wants money for hospitals, for schools, for small business loans. Democrats' package is much bigger. There'd be direct financial assistance for individuals, aid for state governments, which is sorely needed. And it seems pretty unlikely that that latter package, the bigger one, is going to materialize. John, you've been talking to lots of Republicans this week for a piece you've written in this week's issue. Talk me through the political calculus of Republicans, particularly those in the Senate at the moment when it comes to a COVID stimulus and frankly, everything else. I mean, a small number, four or five Republican senators have acknowledged that Joe Biden won this election. The vast majority haven't yet uh, and are still saying, oh, we need to see what these court cases throw up. What's going on in the Republican Party? Well, I think there is a difference between what Republicans are saying or not saying publicly and what they're saying privately. I spoke yesterday with Larry Hogan, who's the governor of Maryland and a Republican and seems to my mind to be perhaps positioning himself for a 2024 run as a sort of post and anti-Trump Republican. He said that while Republicans have been quiet in public, there's a growing number who are having tough conversations with Trump behind the scenes, but he's just not really ready to listen yet. I think with a lot of Republicans in the Senate in particular, there is an a sort of an ingrained opposition to government spending. And I think that what you're seeing now is that sort of orthodoxy is coming to the fore in a way that it did not earlier this spring when they passed the, the large stimulus relief bill. So I believe the latest offer from McConnell was a $500 million bill. That sounds like a lot, but it really isn't that much. The House bill the Democrats passed was $3 trillion. So the final bill will be somewhere in between there. As for how much it ultimately is or when it is, that's unclear. I think there's some hope still that there can be a stimulus bill of some size passed before the end of the year. If not, this becomes the Biden administration's first priority. And obviously, they would rather not spend any more political capital in the early days than they have to. On The Economist Asks this week, Jim Clyburn, the veteran congressman from South Carolina, talks to our colleague Anne McElvoy. And I was interested by a comment he had about how Biden would put a national plan together, but a lot hinges on whether states buy into it. And he said, I have no idea how the how the states will accept it. Biden has said that he wants a mask mandate in every state. It seems unlikely that governors will go ahead with that. There have been a few different interesting comments from Biden's advisors, including that the whole pandemic could be managed with a lockdown lasting four to six weeks. You know, all these kind of things, it'll be really interesting to see whether Biden can use his political capital to try to get some bipartisan consensus. Yeah, that really will be a test of his political skill, because when he says things like, I'd have a national mask mandate, well, the truth is the federal government can't order people to wear masks. He's going to have to persuade people, persuade governors, persuade governors of different parties, persuade, as Dr. Patel said, people who are trusted in their communities to encourage people to wear masks. So it's going to be a test of the skill that he has promised, right, which is the skill of, of bringing people together, of getting people negotiating again, of, of stopping gridlock. So to the extent that he does have a national plan, it will be the first test of his political acumen as president. Uh, unfortunately, the clunk you heard during my answer was my phone falling off the shelf. Of all the natural events and creatures that have interfered with our recordings, I feel like dropping a phone is pretty benign. Well, Fasman, before you break anything else in your house, let's get on to the quiz. The Economist reported on the Salk polio vaccine in the issue of April 16th, 1955. 
Our lead American story in the same issue had the headline, Mechanizing the President. President Eisenhower had redesigned the White House executive office along military lines to allow him more time on the golf course, we reported. What was the powerful new job he had created? Oh, chief of staff. Mm, Very smart. I'm sure that that's correct. It was White House chief of staff. John, you got there first, so you get a point. I didn't get there at all. I'm still in the station. (laughs) As we mentioned earlier, Joe Biden's going to give that job to his longtime advisor, Ron Klain. Sherman Adams did it for Eisenhower, carving out a powerful role before he resigned in 1958. He was caught taking gifts from a textile magnate under federal investigation, among them a Vicuña fur coat. Adams retired to New Hampshire, where he opened the Loon Mountain Ski Resort. Which Democratic politician, governor of New York, and Cold War diplomat is credited with inventing the chairlift? That is such a great question. This is something I should really know. Um, a governor of New York... And the Cold, a Cold War, War diplomat. diplomat. Rockefeller. Isn't there a governor Rockefeller? Yes. Some Rockefeller. Stop. I'm in such suspense. Tell me. Yeah, I'm, 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 I will follow Charlotte's lead. I can't, I can't think of the name. It was Avril Harriman. Ah! Points to you playing at home if you know who Avril Harriman was. Before entering politics, Harriman was chairman of the Union Pacific Railroad. To boost passenger demand, he developed Sun Valley, Idaho, America's first ski resort. Harriman saw what downhill skiing was missing, a handy way of getting back uphill. A Union Pacific engineer in Omaha named James Curran solved the problem. He adapted a design for loading bales of bananas at the United Fruit Docks in Honduras. So if you ever find yourself on a ski lift again, think of the bananas. (laughs) Fasman, you come out the narrow winner of that quiz by a whole point. So thanks to you. Thank you, Charlotte, as well. Thanks, John. Thank you. And thanks also to listener Tim Riley, who pointed out that all the answers to last week's quiz were contained in the song James K. Polk by the band They Might Be Giants. That's all from us. You can get in touch, like Tim did, on email. Radio at economist.com is the address. Thanks for the lovely ratings and reviews you've left this week. It really helps spread the word and does more for our self-esteem than a German shepherd ever could. Thanks very much for listening. We'll have more checks and balance next week. edit my questions to make them sound clever (laughs) sound like such a halfway you don't you don't you don't you don't at all your interviews are very good at least three-quarter wit